welcome to The Science of Fiction. I'm Andrew Holding, and today I'm joined by Sam Gregson. Hello. So, um, you work on a very big thing in uh, Geneva. I do. I work at the, uh, at the LHC. This is true. So, so, why do we have a very large thing that crosses two countries for extraordinary amounts of money? What, well, why, why do we want this? <laughs> well, somebody's got to give me something to do, Andrew, right? So, um, but, I mean... Um, Personally, um, I work on the, the topic of CP violation. I mean, obviously we have this large machine in Geneva because we're trying to kind of unravel some of the mysteries of the universe. Um, and the one that I work on is, is CP violation. So um, I'm sure everyone out there knows that the universe around us is, is made up of protons, neutrons, electrons, standard building blocks. But maybe what you don't know that um, all of these particles have a corresponding antiparticle. So there's an antiproton, anti-electron, anti-neutron. Um, and what we see, or what should what should occur, is that these these particles should be equivalent. And what we see is that everything around us is actually just made up of standard matter and no antimatter. So we're looking at the LHC as to understand why that is the case um, through this mechanism of, of CP violation. So basically, where did the antimatter go? Uh, so the so the current premise is that um, in the Big Bang. Um, equal amounts of matter and antimatter were created, um, but the antimatter decayed away slightly quicker than the matter. Um, they interacted some time later. When matter and antimatter interact, they annihilate each other, create light, and you have a little bit of matter left over from the excess. And that's what we are. And that's basically the state of the universe we see today, a little bit of matter and lots of light. So if we can look for these differences in decay rates between particles and antiparticles, the CP violation, then hopefully we can understand why we are where we are. Big questions. Big questions. Well, if you've got any questions about that or anything about our subject today, which is the perception of scientists, not actually Sam's work itself, uh, then do send them in. You can use studio at camfm.co.uk. You can text to 80809. Uh, just start your text message with cam and text cost 10p. Uh, or you can, if you're listening online, you can just type into the little box at the bottom of the uh, online player. Without further ado, here's our first song. <laughs> Oh, it's good to love, roll the toaster. 
Welcome back to the Science of Fiction. Uh, that was Rollercoaster of Love by the Red Hot Chili, Pe- Chili Peppers. Actually, I said it's Rollercoaster of Love. It, it isn't. That's the name you gave me when I had to go search for a track. It's something like the Love Rollercoaster. Okay, sorry, Andy. <laughs> no, I haven't updated the notes. Um, so if you're going to find it, you'll f- Google will help you. Uh, we had okay. one email in. Um, this one's this one's for Sam. Um, how accurate is Shania Twain's perception of the scientist as having the brain but lacking the touch? It's an interesting question, which I assume has come from my good friend Tom Bolton, since he's been going on about Shania Twain all week. Um, All I can say to that is, usually they do have the brain, and Tom, you've never had the pleasure of my touch, so I don't think you would uh, know anything about that. Yes. So so why roller coaster and why love? So the reason that I chose um, Love Roller Coaster or or whatever title I think you you dug out from Google... um, it's because I think the perception of the scientists has, has really changed over history in a kind of a kind of cyclical way. I mean, you start off in, in ancient Egypt, and if you could roll massive blocks on logs or make paper out of reeds, then you were a kind of person of standing and people respected you. Fast forward to kind of medieval England, and I'd wager that if you suggested that one day we could fly or driving carriages that weren't horse-drawn, then you would have come across some problems. Yeah, I mean, um, depends what level of uh, persecution <laughs> is going on at the time. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, of course. And I think, uh, and I mean, you come up to the, you know, last century, um, and then scientists become respected again because you need to build weapons for the world wars. Um, and then it goes back down again into the modern-day kind of perception where... You know, we're seen as nerdy and kind of irrelevant. So I think it's it's kind of gone cyclically up and down. And I think it kind of goes in phase with when people perceive that the science is needed. You know, so obviously when we have the world war and we need the science to, to build the weapons to, to beat the Nazis. Whereas nowadays, I think we just think of larger plasma screen TVs and iPods, and we don't really perceive a great deal of necessity for science at the at the current time. I mean, I don't think many people see technology as science either. And I mean, they are very different things. One is several years later but people sort of disconnect the two I think that's a fair point so what sort of what sort of thing do you think do you think it's getting better again now do you, do you think 
I, I think it's getting slightly better now. I think, you know, people's perceptions are, are slightly changing. Maybe that's that goes hand in hand with what I was saying with the perceived necessity for science. I mean, there's some quite big global crises looming on the on the horizon. You know, you've got the energy crisis. Um, obviously, global warming is another big thing. But I also think science is becoming a little bit sexier as well with, uh, you know, the kind of intro of uh, Brian Cox. And uh, I think the way that scientists are being are being presented um, in public is is improving slowly I think but there's a long way to go I mean I think we do have to work on it because I mean science hasn't always the product of science just say because science itself is sort of an intangible thing uh, hasn't always been for the best you know you look at some of the mistakes I mean, CFT is not not the greatest scientific discovery um, seemed brilliant at the time didn't react with anything totally harmless you could do anything like them just don't leak them out into the atmosphere uh, which we did I feel like I'm on trial now. No, <laughs> you personally. No, that, that was Thomas Midgley who also put lead into lead petrol. That's true. That's he, true. He, he was a legend in uh, making bad choices. Uh, <laughs> uh, sadly, eventually died, I believe, in a contraption he made to help the suffer people suffering from polio. Trapped in it. He didn't, didn't have a good life. He didn't have a great life. No. Um, so, what, where do you, where, who, how do you link this into, what fiction do you bring with this for us? <sighs> I, I do I like... Mean, Sci-fi, um, as you know, I'm kind of a, a bit of a big uh, lover of Stargate, um, and kind of the example, I guess, of the perception of the scientists and how it's kind of changed over time. I'd, I'd probably bring in uh, Sam Carter from uh, from Stargate. Um, in the early episodes, she kind of comes in as a woman as well in science, which is uh, another kind of another kind of prejudice of the scientists that they're usually male. I mean, certainly in the LHC, I would have thought you've got a lot of male physicists. Uh, we have a disproportionate number of, of male physicists. It's not it's not a great place to uh, to pick up chicks if you. It's not a place for know. picking up chicks. So I it's hope. not a place for <laughs> picking up chicks, but it's a nice fringe benefit, and it's <laughs> or lack largely, of. largely denied. Yeah, um, but I think she comes into a kind of um, very male-dominated environment in that kind of U.S. Um, Air Force Base. Um, she's she's dealt with quite a lot of disrespect at the start from from Jack. Um, you know. She says she doesn't have any respect because her, in, you know, her reproductive organs are on the inside rather than the out. But as the kind of show goes on, she becomes more respected. She becomes a larger character in her own right, and she she gains the respect of all her peers. So I think, hopefully, a similar thing will happen for uh, for all the scientists. As time so, so we just need to find a wormhole to another planet. Yeah, I mean, you would show someone respect if they did that. I'd imagine. Yeah, you, but I mean. The were there on the Apollo missions were there scientists some of them were scientists weren't they as well as being test pilots I mean I don't know a great deal about it but uh, I mean there must have been right for the uh, later on not the beginning maybe not the beginning because you know we're not good at flying planes <laughs> as I understand it they, you know when you have a space mission you usually take at least one kind of straight up scientist as a kind of mission mission specialist I believe they call it in the American parlance so yeah, the so they're up there in space right now, all over the place. I've got scientists do, are everywhere. I've got to do this. I've got to, I've got to get my space science career going. I think you should. Right. Well, um, on that note, I think I think we'll move on to our our next rather a choice track by you, Sam. I'm too sexy <laughs> for my love. Too sexy for my love. Love's going to leave.
shirt Too sexy for my shirt So sexy it hurts And I am too sexy for Milan Too sexy for Milan New York and Japan Welcome back to the Science of Fiction, and that, of course, was "I'm Too Sexy" by Right Said Fred. Um, why? <laughs> why not? Um, but uh, seriously, the reason that I chose that was because we kind of went through the historical perception um, of science, um, and I think nowadays scientists are thought of as as very nerdy. Um, you know, they're socially awkward, they're reclusive, they're terrible with women. Obviously. You are definitely. I, I couldn't possibly say on this. I, I do okay. I do okay. I will say that. Respectful? <laughs> Don't answer that question if it I'm would incriminate I'm, I'm just... I'm putting the shovel down now. I'm not <laughs> digging any further into that. Um, and I think that's the kind of modern perception of the scientist. I mean, if you go to a party and somebody tells you to, to dress as a scientist, Andy, how do you dress? Lab coat, mad hair, and something explodes. Well, there you go. So I think that's unfair. But I think that's the kind of person you really have to show respect to. If someone comes up to your street view in lab coat, mad hair, and something explodes, generally that's quite a scary person. I, I think respect is a, <laughs> a strong word in that. In that. <laughs> Fear, perhaps. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, you're right. The uh, mad scientist still goes on. And interestingly, there's a study done um, done ages ago now uh, where they got kids to draw pictures of what they thought scientist was, yeah. and that actually is a stereotype that comes in slightly later. When they're younger, okay. they don't have it. So it's when they're a little bit old, still sort of primary school level, they start drawing a mad scientist. 
So um, we need to start sending children to uh, large droves of children to science labs to uh, yeah get this out of them. Or, or just not put mad scientists on every other TV show because yeah. there is in fiction all the time in mad scientists. It's a lot more interesting though. I, th- I think that's I think that's the problem is that is that to to get any traction with anything in science in the media, um, people like to have their kind of stereotypes pandered to. It's very difficult to to present something that that, that kind of changes opinion. Certainly in the main, the sort of main tabloids, which are what everyone buys, you know, mm. that's why they're there. Well, you know, we, we, do, we do kind of science stand-up comedy, and, and I'm very kind of pro-changing this, this idea of, uh, of how the scientist is perceived as, as extremely nerdy and, and such. But in my comedy, I tend to kind of go back to that, because people expect it, and people, people are amused by it, and they understand that kind of um, perceived notion. So it's very difficult to actually... Maybe I'm a little bit hypocritical in the way, but, um, but it's very difficult to change those perceptions. But in some respects, you, you know, all scientists are nerdy. They're, they're really, really interested in something that's really, really irrelevant to everyday life. I mean, <laughs> you might say where did the universe come from is really, really relevant because it's quite important that the universe is here. But it doesn't. I, I don't ever question that it's here. Generally, it's still here when I wake up in the morning. I think it's. I think it's difficult when you when you when you say something like that to, to, to kind of define relevance because it's, it's very difficult when you when you find a new area of, of physics for example um, where I work to, to know how that will lead on and, and have repercussions in real life what technologies can spin off from studies at the LHC for example so the relevance I think can come later and I think that's I think maybe we'll come on to that a little bit later in one of my points but I think I think there's a lot more relevance to, to kind of studies that people see as irrelevant at the moment um, yeah. that will become clear. We, you know, you don't always need to know where you're going. Sometimes you need to explore. Yeah. Find out what's out there. Um, pioneering human spirit. Uh, pioneering. Well, it's, it's, you can't exactly go exploring the planet anymore, can you? Except for the oceans, I suppose. Except the oceans. The oceans are still free. The land, we kind of have done. You'd hope so. You'd hope so. Found, find a missed bit. Where's the city of gold? We haven't found that yet. Maybe it was fictional. Atlantis. Atlantis? But again, no, Atlantis is totally fictional. Yet regularly you get news stories going, Atlantis has been found. It's like, but it's, it's fictional. Is this Eric Van Dan- Have you been listening to Eric Van Daniken again? No. <laughs> Explain to us about Eric. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a show that we very much enjoy in the, in the Selwyn MCR. It wouldn't be fair not to mention my, uh, my friend Jalal Osman, um, called Ancient Aliens. Um, which is on the History Channel, bizarrely, um, so supposed to be uh, accurate, um, where Eric and his cohorts like to come on and explain to us how all the uh, ancient structures are were basically built by, by aliens and that uh, people in the past could never possibly have conceived or built these structures. And it's basically very amusing. And so things like the pyramids could not have possibly been built by man? No. But clearly they were, because aliens don't seems a bit unlikely you come all this way, build a pyramid and leave. It seems very strange that, um, you know, an alien with a, a vastly superior spaceship will come and build a, a stone monument. Yeah. It's a little bit strange, but where they, where they go. Yeah, and, and why, why have they only ever seen the most conspiracy theories want to talk to the US government? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know about you, but they're not, they're not the only people to talk to. They're not particularly open with their, uh, with the helping of mankind, are they? <laughs> um, Unless they have a southern drawl, you're not getting any help off the aliens. Not yeah. Well, but Roswell, can you explain that? Uh, 
I can't explain it. It is a mystery. Weather balloon, wasn't it? It's a, that's the official story. Is that the official story? Something crashed there, I think. I've, I've, I've been told somebody's just come in and told me I have to say that. <laughs> He's quite gun. big and he has a gun. But yeah, the um, sort of the idea that science is a nerdy, I mean, the best example of that is the Big Bang Theory, which is sadly a bit too true. I, there's, there's no getting away from the point that this stereotype is adhered to by a large demographic in the science community, particularly in the physics community in which I work. There are, you know, quite a few nerdy, reclusive people. Um, I mean, that's because quite a lot of physics can be done with a computer without doing an experiment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I spend, <laughs> I spend an exorbitant amount of time at a computer. I wish I got to spend less time. Um, so it is true that there are people like this, but there are people like this in, in other fields as well, in all walks of life. And I think, I think maybe we get a little bit... Uh, a little bit kind of uh, a little bit over the top for the for the scientists getting this, and I think I think some, a part of it is that um, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a, a great deal, or there hasn't historically been a great deal of access to kind of the highest level of, of science. Um, nowadays, you know, with, with with blogs coming in, where you can everyone can see everything that's going on at the LHC at large science experiments around the world. So I think this should hopefully. Give a little bit more traction to the, to the idea that our scientists are uh, quite and nice people. Yeah, of course, the problem with it is there's so much of it. I mean, you can't keep track of every bit of science that's going on. Well, yeah, actually, if you could, you'd be great. You'd make a lot of money because you'd be able to put it together and come out with some brilliant discoveries. Yeah, it's ironically kind of gone the other way that now there's there's kind of too much exposure, and and I think people get maybe a little bit kind of turned off to it because you have to filter to to actually work out what is going on now rather than previously having no access or having to go to a library and dig out a dusty paper, if, if you even had access to, to it at all. And then the dusty paper was generally written really badly. Yeah. There, there is, I, th I think I that's the point that I'll come on to next. Is it next? Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, well, in that case, then we should probably nip on to the next track, uh, which has once again been selected by Sam and I have no responsibility for. <laughs> Oh, 
Welcome back to The Science of Fiction. Today I'm joined by Sam Gregson. And uh, we're currently talking about The Perception of Scientists. And that last track was You're So Vain by Carly Simon. Great, great choice. Uh, why? So, again, just kind of hoping to kind of lead into another perception of the, of the scientists as I see it. Um, the perception is that scientists are, are very arrogant um, and they also make things overly complicated. Um, I'm sure that's something no one could ever accuse me of doing. Um, but yeah, I think people see us as, as very arrogant. And uh, and you've got a fam- favourite arrogant Stargate scientist. <laughs> I do. Um, the quote was uh, from uh, Dr Rodney, Rodney McKay from uh, Stargate SG-1 in Atlantis. Um, and when one of his hairbrain, scream, uh, hair-brain schemes goes wrong again, uh, he's, he's, he's told, I thought you said this would work, McKay. And he says, in response, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm an extremely arrogant man who tends to think that all his plans will work, which I think is probably how most people see most scientists, or at least how they probably see me in the lab. But it is, it is quite difficult, because you get this sort of idea. Um, well, I mean, we mentioned this over music earlier, but uh, in school you're taught that it's facts. Then you get out in the real world and you sort of read the newspaper and one day we're curing cancer, the next day something causes it. And it'd be the same thing, like red wine. So no one can make the mind up. Um, well, at least the Daily Mail can't. And it is, it is this sort of conflicting idea that you get taught the scientists know everything and then later on they don't know a thing because they can't come up with an answer. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think there's... I think there's also a little bit in there about the reporting of science that maybe maybe yeah, you know, I mean, I people like to make sensationalist claims all the time. Maybe some of them aren't actually correctly reported, but but I agree um, uh, that it does seem sometimes the scientists don't actually have any idea what they're talking about. Yeah, I, mean, I think it is very much how it's shown to people rather than actually the reality I think you know these studies where something cures or causes cancer sometimes it's one part of it but it's, you know if you're looking at wine it has exactly. several things in it yeah. but they'll just say it's wine which is why it's conflicting or that it will just be a bit of evidence moving the direction slightly one way to the other yeah. but not actually being the total cure or the total cause yeah. um, but I think there, there is a little bit of, of, of I think there's also some kind of truth in this point in the fact that um, I think there is a little bit of intellectual snobbery. I mean, well, I'm working on a on on, a pa- on papers with people at the at the LHC at the moment, and I find that they do tend to use you know 15 words where one will do to try and make the you know analysis sound more interesting and more intelligent. And and I think I think particularly in the science community, this is something that we that we really suffer from when we when we talk between each other. But also, I think. When when papers when 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 studies go out to the public and people use you know they use jargon or they use complex words or they try to make them look themselves look smarter than they are, I think that gives a really bad perception of, of science and I think that's where you need maybe some kind of middlemen to step in. It's happening more and more to, to kind of well bloggers are doing it, aren't they yeah. you know in non science well perhaps scientific background but day by day not scientists are getting more and more interested in reporting well what's going on and I think they're filling in the gap where the traditional media is failing. Exactly, and I think I think that's actually a really important middle step. I mean, I'm, I'm completely against, like, uh, you know, try and cut out as many kind of levels of the chain as you can, but from what I've seen, particularly at CERN, is that a lot of people have have trouble communicating their, um, 
their research to to the to the public audience and uh it, but it's really important that they do so it's not just because it's important that everyone knows about science and it's important that these um discoveries are reported but it's also important for example for funding CERN for example is is, is basically paid by by taxpayer money because it's paid by member states um and they they put money forward for it and if you can't communicate why certain discoveries are important for example and then you cannot convince these governments that they should continue to put money in so it's very important for us, us as a science community to be able to communicate our ideas and our findings to the public at large but should that be done by scientists or by pr i mean because most most departments do have some sort of pr department somewhere well I think most, it, or at least most funding bodies i think you kind of gave the answer your, yourself before where, where you said that the person usually needs to be f- from a science background because they at least need to be able to grasp the the kind of key concepts of the of the high level science, but then they need to have a, you know a bit more tact, a bit more skill in kind of wrapping that into a kind of PR bundle. So I think I think they don't need to be the greatest scientist, but they need to have a grasp of the science, and then they need to be a kind of a kind of good PR person, someone who can present themselves well. And I think I think that's that's becoming more and more a kind of hole that needs to be filled by the kind of science communication side of things and then we have a problem of course that some scientists claim that no one can understand quantum mechanics <laughs> this is a this is a famous richard Feynman quote yeah right? um so okay maybe there's certain things that are extremely difficult but you can usually without having to understand the intricacies of something you can understand the impacts of it on, on, on yeah. your life or why it's important same way I quite like my car to get me to work but I don't necessarily have to understand how every single part of that was made fantastic analogy exactly so um, but actually um, Jim Al-Khalili just wrote a book which is all on quantum mechanics for everyday people oh, okay and his point was that he said he reckons the biggest thing that faced quantum mechanics is in science a lot of people say well there's no analogies you can really make for it because it's all maths yeah and you can't teach you about maths and he's done his book saying look i can do it with just using analogies and without keeping away from maths and i haven't had a chance to read it because it's quite recent but that sounds quite interesting because one of the things that people often try to do certainly in quantum is try and come from a mathematical yeah. argument or just make jokes about dead cats yeah. well this is a this is a, a kind of this is kind of a really interesting point that the things like quantum mechanics relativity are very hard to grasp or at least I found them hard to grasp in, in my undergraduate um, science um, studies because because you can't you can't relate to any kind of personal experience you, you've not traveled near the speed of light and you can't have any concept of these tiny tiny things so it's very difficult because all your life you've been taught at these slow speeds and, and these kind of macroscopic quantities uh, my friend actually Alex Focus um, at Selwyn he's actually learning quantum physics without having learned any classical physics beforehand <laughs> which is actually going to be a kind of very interesting kind of psychological so what, why is he doing this? Is it, whether he can understand the world around us a lot better than uh, people who've learned classical physics Did maybe he, can why? Uh, I have no idea how he's got to this stage but <laughs> this is something he told me the other day so he's, he's just been blinkered from any apple falling from any trees I believe so, so right maybe maybe by some sort of mad science experiment that's he's, he's the Truman Show of Selwyn College he's the Truman Show of science yeah of Selwyn College. exactly things 
in life for free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money But your love won't pay my bills I want money Everything it's true. What it don't get, I can't use. I want money. That was money. That's what I want by the flying lizards. It was. It was. So, Sam, uh, money or lizards? Which one was it? Is this like daddy or chips? Well, it's, why did you pick the song? Oh, why did I pick the song? Um, have, you, have you remembered you on a radio show? I, I don't know. I just woke up again. Um, so, the kind of next point that I was going to make is that I think, I think people perceive that most of science... Uh, it's extremely expensive. Um, maybe this is the recent fall of the of the LHC and, and larger experiments. Um, but people think it's very expensive, and, and, and time is hard. Times are hard at the moment, um, and I guess there's a low perceived necessity, as we, as we said before, for for science at the moment. So, so, a lot of people, at least in my experience, seem to say, "Why are we wasting money on science?" So why are we? Why are we? Well, I think it's because because uh, the short answer is that, that we need to. I mean... We I need to waste money. <laughs> okay, we need no. to spend money, you, you, not so waste argue, money else. You're arguing this, we, if we spend money in science, we get more money back. It's, it's a return on an investment. Yeah, I th- well, I think that's one of the points. But also, I think it's, it's just... It's very important from a kind of base level because we've, we've got a lot of a lot of significant problems going that are going to face us as a planet soon. We've, you know, as I've mentioned, we've got we've got global warming, so we need to put a lot of um, focus on on green technologies. Um, we've got an energy crisis looming again. We need to look at green technologies to get us through that. So, I think putting money in now and quickly is actually 
the most efficient way to save us money later as well. So, and is it at all because you need a job in a few months' time? I, I am slightly biased. I will. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I think. I think research and it, you know it, things that go beyond what people normally think of science as well, but is an investment into the future. You know, yeah. people wouldn't consider geography as science, but clearly it has applications to looking after the world and and knowing how to move on. This is a, this is a major. Uh, this is another major problem that we suffer from. I go back to my my work at the LHC, and you talked about about CP violation at the start, and you said, well, who kind of cares? You know, why is the universe here? Well. Nobody really knows from studying the things at the LHC what the spin-offs will be. Um, we already know that studying um, studying the, the work we do there has, has led to great leaps in, in computer technology. Um, there's work on proton therapy going on with the beams at the LHC. So you never... It's very difficult for the public to see the spin-off technologies that are coming from this research into science. It's not just these ethereal questions that don't really give us anything back. Um, there's a lot of side benefits and there's a lot of side benefits just to getting that amount of kind of brain power and collaborative effort together it really leads to a lot of um, a lot of advances that that do impinge on on kind of everyday life and do make our lives better i mean proton therapy which you mentioned there is used to treat tumors and cancers isn't it Correct. so what we're talking about is some big project trying to find where the universe came from ends up delivering a medical treatment which is quite incredible and certainly not something you put someone put down on the original justification exactly there was a there was another example um recently that someone was telling me it was about um looking at the images that were coming out of the lhc and the algorithms they were using to clean up um the images coming out of the lhc um uh, an oncologist looked at that algorithm that they were using and said oh actually i could apply your algorithm to look at these these blurred out um images of tumors or, or at least to look for look for tumours in blood out images of of human tissue, and he's really increased his his rate of finding kind of um, early onset um, certain types of early onset cancer. So it's very difficult to see where these um, where these improvements, the, these things that impinge on everyday life, will come from. But just kind of having that that kind of pioneering spirit, getting all this brain power together to look at certain problems, actually creates those solutions. With, without actually seeking them in the first instance. So, so in a way, CERN is actually building the largest camera in the world. That's probably a fair analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Taking very, Look very at tiny, tiny things with our big, big camera. Your big, big camera. It's all about size for you, isn't it? I, I, no comment. No comment, no comment. Uh, well, I think it's in time for another one of your, uh, I must say, eclectic mix of music today. It's very eclectic.
Welcome back to A Science of Fiction. That was Magic by Pilot. Uh, a, a classic. Classic. Absolutely classic. Absolutely classic. Uh, so what you're going to obviously mention is the fact that some people kind of feel that science destroys the magic. Yeah, this was this was a, a point that, that, that my friend uh, Chris Wickett put forward to me that was the idea that, that studying science kind of takes all the mystery out of the world. It takes all the, mag- the magic, there we go, out of the world. Um, so and that's not something we should be trying to do. This is the sort of pointy-eared Spock thing. No this one, no one likes Spock. exactly. No one, no one likes Spock. He's he's drearily logical, right? And he has a he has a point now and again, but he's I mean, not he's not the most charismatic man, should we say? So, do you think that's true? Though? Do you think science takes some magic out of everything? No, I think that's I've, I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, you only need to look at how many of my friends have like Hubble, Hubble deep field like pictures as their screensavers or on Facebook to know that science can provide some of the most kind of beautiful and magical images and, uh, and scenes that we, that, we, that we have and I don't think studying, studying it takes the beauty out of it at all. I, I think usually when we look into a scientific mystery we end up opening a completely new can of worms anyway um, and the magic actually kind of expands <laughs> rather than being removed. Because you, you've put on the show notes a quote from Feynman here, haven't you? Uh, I have. Yeah, so it's, it's, why do the poets of the present not speak of it? What men are poets who can speak of Jupiter if he were a man? But if he were immense, spinning sphere of methane and ammonia must be silent. Exactly. So... Uh, you might want to explain that. <laughs> I mean, I mean... Who am I to to uh, to go against Richard Feynman? Is, is probably the first point. But I think I think people people uh, in that point were saying that you know you can you can talk about kind of old analogies. We we, we usually draw analogies to to, to to kind of human life. And now understanding better science, why why should we not be able to make new to make new analogies and make and make those new discoveries just as beautiful as the analogies we used to make in the past I, I think it's just a little bit of a disconnect where where um, historically we've always compared beautiful things to, to, to certain things, you know, a beautiful sunrise for example whereas aspects of science whether we understand them or not and, and new up, upcoming aspects of science are just as beautiful, it's I mean, just we didn't know anything about them in the past and, and so Byron didn't write anything about quantum physics because he didn't know anything about it. I mean, last week we were talking with um, James Grind about maths, and one of the comments was how people in mathematics field always talk about how beautiful the solution is. You know, people mm. go looking for another solution yeah. because it's pretty and beautiful. Um, which just I know it was very beautiful when I finally got one of my physics proofs to work in undergrad because it was a very rare occurrence. <laughs> But there, there is a sort of beauty of how that comes together, and it's, it's not something you can explain without someone experiencing, which sounds very conceited. Yeah. But it is true, you know, you can't feel something come together. There are, but it's not just science that happens in, but if someone hasn't experienced that in their own field or their life, they won't get it. But it's very similar to when someone's doing something creative and the picture on the canvas comes together or yeah. the story comes together in a novel. It is that kind of thing, except... I, I agree. You and don't necessarily have control over it. Yeah, and I think I think you kind of kind of touched on a bit of the problem there as well. Is with with science, maybe you know, obviously with quantum physics, you can't the the general public can't really. Um, it's hard to get a kind of feeling for that. Whereas everyone has seen a sunrise, everyone's seen a beautiful sunrise, everyone's seen a fantastic sunset. So you can you can really think on that image, and you you have a grasp 
of, of what that image means in terms of how beautiful it is. Whereas when somebody comes to you and explains to you how beautiful a, a science proof is or, or a mathematics proof, unless you have some experience in that field, it's very difficult for you to, to replicate that feeling in, in, your, in your own mind. Um, so I think that's a, a very important point to, to kind of make about that. Okay, well, it's our last track for the evening, uh, and this is by a scientist who you mentioned earlier. You can walk my path, you can wear my shoes, land a tug like me, and be an angel too. But maybe you ain't never gonna feel this way. You ain't never gonna know me But I know you Singing in our things Can only get better Can only get better If we see it through That means me and I mean you too So teach me not to think Can only get
That, of course, was It Can Only Get Better by D-Ream. But, of course, not the only track by uh, a great physicist. You're looking at me blankly. I'm... I'm Brian May. Ah, is he great? Is he? He, great? he went. He, he he didn't. Unlike um, Brian Cox, well, it's obviously been called Brian's importantly. Uh, he he decided that music was more important than his science career. And he does have crazy hair, so he could have yeah. done science apparently. So um, he he's his supervisor said he was this guy who just kept walking out the lab and very quiet. This is Brian May, uh, and went off to gigs once in a while, and then never got around to finish his PhD. And then very recently, as in the last ten years, he um, decided to get round to finishing off his. Uh, Astro, astronomy or astrophysics PhD. I did not know this. That's yeah. very, very interesting. So yeah, there's a, there's a great line in music linking to scientists. Excellent. So um, yes, it can only get better. Um, who are you looking for? So, uh, kind of with this point, I was, I was making the point that I, I think, as we said earlier, that the, the kind of portrayal of, of scientists is, is, is kind of improving slowly. Um, and hopefully will continue to to improve. I mean, there's a there's a couple of reasons that that I that I think it will. Brian Cox is is one. Well, he's doing a great job. He's doing a good job. He's bringing science to the to the kind of masses. Um, well, he can fill a lecture theatre with the public. I mean, exactly. people, whatever you criticise, you have him. He's got people interested. Yeah, and this is a this is a really this is a really important thing. As we said, a lot a lot of these experiments are, are kind of publicly funded as well, so it's, it's important for the public to engage with them and feel that they have some kind of say in them. I mean, he was voted, I think, one of the sexiest people by a People magazine poll in, in two thousand nine or something. So yeah. that suggests a perception of at least a small segment of scientists is is, is changing rapidly. I'm doing what right Fred, right said Fred asked. He's doing he's doing exactly what right said Fred asked, and and you can't say fairer than that. And I think I think you know linking it back to kind of sci-fi. I mean, the portrayal is is improving in in science fiction, in films, in in. Um, in kind of series, you've got Carter in Stargate, in Star Trek, the the reboot of Star Trek, you've got Ahura, who's now you know very very kind of sexy, attractive woman, um, very forthright in Batman. You've got Lucius, who's um, Morgan Freeman, probably the coolest man on the planet. Um, and in Bond, you've got the new Q, who's kind of younger and hipper and, and more attractive than the bumbling John Cleese. I haven't had a chance to see that yet. Is, uh, is, I, he, a, is he a good Q? You see, I get castigated for this, but I thought it was garbage. I thought the film was garbage. Ooh. Well, no, I haven't got a comment, but on that on that film review of the week, I think we're going <laughs> to start wrapping up. So you've got, uh, obviously, some much hope for future scientists, but also you're, you're dressing up as Santa Claus and running around town in the near future. Oh, oh yeah, you've picked up on this, obviously. Um, my Myself and my friend uh, Nathan Bublu are, are trying to set up a kind of global um, charity event called the, the Santa Dash. Um, and we've got we've got big chapters in in Cambridge and Oxford so far. So basically, the the idea is that you dress up as Santa or, or in some sort of Christmas attire, um, pay a set fee. So it's only five pounds, and then we run about a ten kilometre run around Cambridge from from Kings back to Kings around the Cambridge colleges. Um, all the information's um, on Facebook. Um, so just look for uh, Cambridge Santa Dash, um, and we're hoping to open up chapters at MIT, Harvard, Taken International. We're all already kind of getting some traction in Durham as well. Um, so look on the website, sign up, and we'd, we'd love to have you there on the 25th of November. Uh, and the proceeds are going towards uh, poor employment levels of elves in North Pole? No, they're going <laughs> to the Kenyan Orphans Project, but we, we, we can talk, Andrew. If we, we can uh, talk, we, we can, can look after those elves. We can talk. Oh, well, thank you, it's been great to have you here. It's been and, absolute um, pleasure to be here, thank you very much. Yes, the rest of you tune in next week, or you can download all the previous show on the podcast.